Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Well, the Transfiguration should leave us in awe and wonder. I don't know if you've had enough coffee this morning. I don't know if you actually heard the words that Jake read. But we have this man, Jesus, on a mountain. And like that, his countenance has changed. If this were a Christian ed class, I could spend an hour on this passage. We could ask questions like, why are Moses and Elijah here? What's up with the cloud? And how does that connect to the Old Testament? Where else do we hear the voice from heaven say, this is my son, the beloved? And those are just three of a plethora of questions that we could ask of this text. Because there are connections not just to the rest of Mark, but also to the rest of the New Testament, and especially to all of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. But this is not a forum. I don't have an hour, and it's probably for your best. But I think that even if we unpacked this for an hour, we wouldn't exhaust it. So maybe this, in 12 minutes, is the best way to approach it, because we can keep ourselves in that place of awe and wonder with Peter, James, and John at the mountain. Maybe the best for us is to take our cue from Sufjan Stevens, who sings a song called The Transfiguration. And he doesn't really say anything more than the text says itself. He says, lost in the cloud, a voice, son of man, son of God. But we have to say something about the transfiguration. We can't just have Jake read it, and I say amen, and I sit down. Otherwise, I probably would be fired. It'd be really nice, right? I just, just made the vicar. It's, it's time to let him go. <laughs> But I'm going to begin this sermon, this morning's sermon, with a, to- uh, with a quote from a New Testament scholar who's way smarter than I am. And what he does when approaching the transfiguration is he connects the transfiguration to the cross. And I think that what he does here will help us take an in-depth look at the transfiguration while not trying to dissect it and analyze it. He keeps us in that place of awe and wonder. And his quote goes like this. The transfiguration of Jesus has a sort of dark twin in the account of the crucifixion. In the one case, Jesus is elevated on a mountain. In the other, he is elevated on a cross. In the one case, Jesus is glorified. In the other, he is shamed. In the one case, two saints appear beside him, Moses and Elijah. In the other, two criminals hang beside him. 
In the one case, God confesses Jesus. In the other, God seemingly abandons Jesus. In the one case, a divine voice declares Jesus to be God's son. In the other, a pagan soldier makes this confession. And the end of this New Testament scholar's chapter on the transfiguration, he says this. The curious meeting of similar motifs and contrasting images creates something like a diptych in which the two plates have similar outlines but different colors. If one scene were sketched on a transparency and placed over the other, many of its lines would disappear. I feel like I could end the sermon right there, but we won't. I think that his name is Dale Allison. His insight is so helpful, and not merely in an academic sense of understanding what's happening at the transfiguration, but also about how to understand how the transfiguration connects to our lived experience, to everyday life. When it comes to the meaning of the transfiguration, we can't look at this text by itself. As dazzling as it is, we have to view it in light of the whole of the Gospels. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think it's really helpful to keep it in mind as we read the Gospels. But the purpose of the Gospels is to get you and me to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is the protagonist of the story? And throughout these Gospels, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get these people who are like, I figured it out, only to realize, well, I haven't completely figured it out. And the Gospel writers are bold enough to say that if you don't have it in its completion, if you don't understand Jesus' identity in its entirety, well, then you're worse than those who don't understand it at all. You've got to get it. And it's not just you and me, the reader, but the disciples themselves, especially in Mark, the gospel we're going over this year, the disciples left and right seem clueless. Right before this episode, Peter approaches Jesus and says, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus is like, great, somebody gets it. And then Jesus tells him, and I will go and die for you and for everyone else. And then Peter is just like, no, no, no. That's not what a Messiah does. And this is that same point where Jesus calls one of his best friends Satan or the adversary or the tempter. Because again, to get Jesus' identity half right is to get it completely wrong. I think in our day and age, we see a lot of this when we see, you know, these popular writers who love to write in Newsweek and Time around the, the Easter time, and always are like, well, Jesus isn't who the church says he is. He's something else. He's a great teacher or a great prophet or this or that. The gospel writers anticipated this 2,000 years ago. What they're saying is you can't just say that Jesus is a good teacher. To say that and to leave it at that is to get him all wrong. You can't even say, as we read in our transfiguration, that Jesus is God, as glorious of an exclamation as that is. To get 
Jesus aright, we have to say that Jesus is the Son of God who goes to the cross for you and for me, for the whole world. This is not some king or some deity out there far removed who glows in glorious white but is unconcerned with the plight of his people. No, this is the Lord of the cosmos who we see his countenance change at the transfiguration. But this is the Lord who has the power to let power go who is so obsessed with you and me that he'll go all the way to humiliation itself to reconcile us to him. The transfiguration is like we sing in those hymns, all glory, laud, and honor be to you. But if we sing that hymn, thinking of Jesus as this majestic being in the clouds, and we leave it at that, then we miss the true glory, laud, and honor. The true glory is that our Lord became one of us and went to the cross for us. He's so obsessed with us in the way that all of us want right on Valentine's Day. But this isn't some romantic love. This isn't some you know, feeling of sentimentality. This is the kind of love that pours itself out for the beloved. As Jim said at the beginning, this is the love that we are obsessed with, with our every move. So when we look at the transfiguration, we have to keep the cross there too. When we look at the cross, as we will in a few weeks in Lent, we have to keep the transfiguration in view. When we say the creed every single week, that's what we're doing. To understand Jesus' identity aright, we have to hold these two things together. Now, how does this connect with live reality? Because that's all like really great theological stuff and all, and it's kind of like, ooh, moving, but it's a little bit in the clouds. How does this affect us in our everyday lives? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person who always wants a mountaintop experience. I always want love to be the most exciting thing in the world, and if it's not, I think that something is wrong. Don't get me wrong, mountaintop experiences are wonderful and great. In fact, in seminary, I met people who worked at Goldman Sachs making 20 times what I make, and they had this experience of Jesus, and they decided to throw all that away and become a church planner making no money. Now, I'm not saying if you have a personal experience of the risen Lord that you necessarily have to quit your jobs and become a minister. In fact, we here are a big fans of the ministry of the laity in what you do in your everyday life. And I remember an experience of my own. I was in high school, and I went to this friend of mine. He had this Bible study, and you know, I, all of them went to a Christian school. I went to a public school. I felt like I was the only Christian I knew. But whenever I went to this Bible study, I had these like euphoric experiences. And I don't think that they were fake or unreal. I felt like I got in touch with the risen Lord. 
the Holy Spirit was working. And I remember there were a few occasions when I drove home and I thought to myself, oh, I am so on fire for my faith that I'm not sure I'm ever going to sin again. But you see, the mountaintop experience is great. But an hour later, that same Ben, who thought he would never sin again, was giving his mother the worst hard time imaginable. Became the selfish kid that I was and still am. (laughs) I'm not trying to knock mountaintop experiences. And we see a mountaintop experience here. But the comfort I get from reading the transfiguration narrative in light of the whole of the Gospels is that that mountaintop experience wasn't enough for the disciples either. Right? They have just experienced the risen Lord in his divine glory. They've just seen Moses and Elijah. These are all Jews here, right? Moses and Elijah are the all-stars of their faith. This is an experience unlike any that you and I have ever had. And yet, these same disciples, a chapter later, are fighting over who is the greatest among them. These same disciples, a few chapters on, abandon Jesus, deny him out of fear. The mountaintop experience, while amazing, doesn't have legs. And I think that that is really the message of holding these two things together. We do have these experiences. We have these experiences of the risen Lord. We experience awe and wonder at the foot of the cross and on the mountain of Tabor. But the beauty of holding all of this together is knowing that even though we've had these mountaintop experiences, even though we should know better, even though, you know, maybe I wasn't so wrong, maybe, you know, I've had these incredible experiences and I shouldn't go being selfish and a real pain to my mother. But the joy of reading the gospel in its entirety is that Jesus, the Lord, the one whose countenance was changed, knows this. And he goes to the cross for you and for me anyway. All for love. All for you and me. The same God who the people of Israel experienced at the burning bush is the one who suffers and dies on the cross. This is the God of all glory who is the one who has the power to let it all go. If that's not the Valentine's Day message better than anything our culture gives us, I don't know what is. And all of this, holding these things together, is what leads us to true awe and wonder. And we can echo Sufyan's refrain, lost in the cloud, a voice, have no fear, we draw near. Lost in the cloud, Lamb of God, you draw near.
There's so much more we could say about the transfiguration. And maybe one day we will. But let's leave it there. The God of all glory is so for us that he sets all that aside, all for love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.